2,622 years ago, there was a king who had a dream, and his dreams recorded for us in the book of Daniel, Daniel, the second chapter. And there's a lot, a lot of information here because in this chapter, uh, God is kind of pulling back the curtains and giving us a big view, a big picture of what's going on throughout history. But in the interest of time, I, I just want us to review this story and focus on the three main characters. God, because it'll tell us about history. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, because it'll tell us about the world that we need to take the message of God to. And then Daniel, so we can learn a little bit about what we're supposed to be doing in this world. So here's the story. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. At the beginning of Daniel, the second chapter, this dream, this dream bothers the king. I can't emphasize that enough. Throughout this story, we're going to see little uh, hints and indications and outright, outright statements that lead us to believe the king was extremely bothered. So it's not, it's not one of those dreams where you only remember part of the details, right? It's not one of those dreams that hangs on a couple days. No, it's probably one of those dreams you wake up in a cold sweat, remember every detail vividly, and it so bothers you, you can't get it out of your head, so you've got to do something about it. Well, if you're a king in ancient Babylon... There is something you can do about it. You can call them the wise men. The wise men had a lot of things to do. One of their responsibilities was to interpret dreams. In fact, one of the things we know about the ancient wise men who are associated with the kingdom of Babylon is they would record dreams. They would record the dreams of the kings and certain noblemen, and they would also record the events that took place around that time. So if somebody else had a dream, all they had to do is go back and look at their look at their records and see what kind of dream it was, and it matches up with another kind of dream and what happened at that time, and then they'd make predictions that maybe that same sort of thing's going to happen. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He's really bothered by this dream. He calls for the wise men to interpret the dream. So the wise men, in essence, say, okay, tell us your dream. We'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no. He says, I want you to interpret my dream, but first of all, I want you to tell me what dream I had without me telling you. So the wise men are very obviously upset at this. It's kind of like, well, you know, what's up with this? You're, in essence, can I say it this way? You're raising the bar a little bit too high here. But you understand why the king wants to do this, right? Because if the king simply tells the dream and he gets an interpretation, I mean, even I can figure this out. It's kind of like, eh, how do you really know, right? How do you really know that that's a valid interpretation? So king wants a little extra proof. What kind of proof does the king want? By the way, I'll be, I'll be very honest with this. I'm not so sure Nebuchadnezzar really gets this. I, I kind of think he does. But a little bit later on in the story, it's going to be made very clear. What he is doing here is he's asking for God to enter into the picture. Because when he says, I want you to tell me the dream I had that I haven't disclosed to anybody else, and then I want you to interpret the dream, here's the way the wise men respond to that request. They say, no human can do that. Only, here's what they said, the gods can see things like that. Well, that's exactly where we're going. King Nebuchadnezzar is not going to take their excuse. So he issues a decree. He sends out the captain of his guard to execute, put to death all the wise men of Babylon. This is another one of the hints that lets us know just how traumatized he was by this dream. He had spent years in conquering the world, not just conquering the world together, tribute from all the nations that he conquered. He conquered the ancient world so that he might glean the best of the best, the most skillful, the wisest people from all these nations and bring them to Babylon. So he might be further trained so that he might have at his disposal the wisest, most capable, 
most skilled people that were alive at that time. And here, in one fell swoop, he's ready to get rid of all of it because they can't tell him the meaning of his dream. I, I think this dream is very significant. So he sends, he sends the captain of his guard with execution orders. Captain of the guard starts going out, gathering up all the wise men, which would include Daniel. Daniel was probably, from everything we can tell, teenager at this time. He gathers up Daniel and some other uh, of the men, and Daniel asks the captain of the guard, why are we being gathered up? Why is there this decree? Why is there this death sentence hanging over our heads? And the captain of the guard explains what had happened with the dream and how nobody was able to interpret the dream. And so Daniel asks for time. He prays to God. God, uh, by the way, the other Hebrews help him pray too. God tells him the dream, gives him the interpretation, so he sets up an audience with the king. He finally gets to talk to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is one of the parts of the story. I don't know why, but this is one of the parts of the story that's always jumped out at me because here, here we are, the king's very upset. He's already issued this decree that, that all the wise men are going to be put to death. Why? Because they can't tell him this dream. And so finally we've got one guy who's had an audience with the king. Daniel comes in the presence of the king, and the king in essence says, all right, finally, somebody can tell me. You can tell me the meaning of my dream. And Daniel's first words are, no, I can't. <laughs> and I'm thinking, are, are you really sure those are the first words you want to come out of your mouth? Okay, it causes me to pause and go back over the story again. Why? Why are those the first words that come out of his mouth? Because he, he wants to emphasize something. No, I can't. No man can. We're pointing the arrows back to God again, aren't we? And so that's what Daniel does. He says, no, I can't interpret this dream. But there is a God, the one true God. And he has revealed to me your dream and its meaning. So here, O king, is your dream. While you were asleep on your bed, you saw this image, all this very great and impressive image. And the head of this image was made out of gold. The shoulders and the arms were made out of silver. Then the mid-torso down to the upper legs made out of bronze. Then the lower part of the legs was made out of iron. And then when you get down to the feet, the iron started to be mixed with clay out into the toes. You saw that great image, and that's what it was made out of. And while you were looking at that image, there was a stone, a rock, cut without hands. In other words, a supernatural thing. This stone's just cut out. And the stone rolls down, and it crashes into the base of this huge image that you saw. And when it hits it, it just totally obliterates this image. It, it, it's, it's, it's like just dust. It's like, it's like chaff blown away by the wind. As soon as, it, as soon as it's demolished, it's blown away, and there's nothing remaining. But that stone that did the demolishing, that stone starts to grow, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And it becomes a great mountain, and the mountain continues, continues to grow until the mountain goes all over the earth. That's your, that's your dream. And I, I'm just guessing that King fell out of his chair at that time because it's like, yes. You know, how in the world could anybody ever guess a dream like that, right? But verbatim, he nailed it. That's the dream. So with, in all likelihood, with bated breath, what does it mean? What does it mean? Daniel says, here's what it means. The Lord God is revealing to you what is going to take place. Because you, O king, you are represented by the, by the head of gold. There's never been a kingdom. There was never an ancient kingdom quite like the kingdom of Babylon. So it's accurately represented by the head of gold. But he says there will be another world kingdom that will come after your kingdom, and it's represented by the silver, by the upper chest and the arms of silver, which, by the way, later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel actually tells, God, through Daniel, actually tells us 
What kingdom's coming next? It's the Medes and the Persians. You know what? History verifies the Medes and the Persians are the ones who come after Babylon. Then he says, after that, there's, another, there's going to be another world power represented by the bronze, the lower torso, and the upper legs. Later on in the book of Daniel, it actually names what kingdom is coming after the Medes and the Persians. That would be Greece. History verifies Greece came after the Medes and the Persians. Are you getting goosebumps here? I just love this. Anyway, after, the, after Greece, then you got iron. What is the world power after Greece? That would be Rome. But remember in this description, the iron turns into iron mixed with clay. If you know anything about the fall of Rome, in the early days, it would be accurately described as a kingdom of iron because it crushed all opposition. But you know what happened? Later on, there was a lot of infighting. There was fighting from without. But a lot of it was decay from within. And it was not conquered like the other world kingdoms were conquered. So it was accurately portrayed as iron, then iron giving way to clay. But During the time of that kingdom, Daniel says, God is going to start a kingdom. That's why it was cut without hands. And God is going to establish a kingdom greater than any world kingdom the world's ever seen. And that kingdom will bring all the other kingdoms to an end. And that kingdom will grow greater and greater until it encompasses the whole earth. How do we see this play out? Well, after Babylon, you do have the Medes and the Persians. After the Medes and Persians, you do have Greece. After Greece, you have Rome. And during the time of the Roman Empire, God sends a prophet. The prophet's name is John. We usually refer to him as John the Baptist. When John the Baptist came, he came preaching a message, a message of repentance. Why? Here's what he said. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's getting ready to start a kingdom. When Jesus finally came, the one that John was announcing, Jesus sent his disciples out. And when he sent his disciples out on a mission trip to the many villages, he told them to preach. And he said, here's what I want you to preach. I want you to tell people that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. It's at hand. When Jesus reached the end of his ministry and he was at his trial, most of the time he kept his mouth shut. Just like Isaiah chapter 53 said, like a sheep before it shears is silent. So he remained silent most of the time. But he did say a couple of things. And one of the things that he said is when Pilate, the governor, was interrogating him and asked him this question, are you a king? And Jesus broke his silence and said, yes, I am the king. It's not the kind of king you're thinking of. My kingdom is not of this world. But here's what he said, for this reason I was born to be king. And then Jesus, after he completed his earthly ministry, he turned to his followers and he said, I want you to remain here in Jerusalem. I want you to remain in Jerusalem until power comes upon you, until a God thing happens. And after that happens, I want you to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem. I want you to go to Judea and Samaria and then the most remote parts of the earth. So they waited there in Jerusalem. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. Then in Acts chapter 2, something happened, a God thing. How do we know it's a God thing? Well, the noise came from heaven. This is in the ancient world where planes weren't flying over and you didn't expect to hear noises from heaven. Great noise, kind of noise, you know those big bangs and stuff like that where everybody hears it and everybody turns? Big noise, big noise, why? Draws attention. Everybody comes towards the noise. When they come towards the noise, this is the, this is the, in the courtyard area of the temple, when people come Towards that noise, what do they see? They see fire. Again, that's the kind of thing that just kind of gets your attention, right? You hear the noise. You go in the direction of the noise. You see this fire, but this fire is coming down from above. Great big ball of fire, and then it separates, 
into 12 different sections. It's not going away. It separates in 12 different sections, and it's hovering over the heads of 12 different men. I don't know about you, but I'm focused on, okay. <laughs> Obviously, God's drawing attention to something's going on here. This fire is hovering over their heads, and they start proclaiming the mighty works of God. Now, now follow me. Here's what Acts chapter 2 says. As they proclaim the mighty deeds of God, everybody there, regardless of where they're from, and we have a long list of people from different cultural backgrounds, different countries who are all assembled there. Here's what happened. These men did not speak different languages to the people. These men were speaking one language, but everybody heard it in a different language. It would be like the guy born in France hearing in French, the guy from Germany hearing in German, English people hearing in English, the guy from South Korea hears Korean, and it's like he's only speaking one time. How in the world can we all hear this in different languages? Obviously, this is a God thing. And so what happens? People respond to the message when Peter gets up to explain what has taken place. And in chapter 2, verse 41, it tells us three thousand people were baptized into Christ that day. Three thousand people joined this movement. What does that mean? Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 explains this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, when you become a Christian, when you are baptized into Christ, here's what it says, you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. Is this, is this coalescing? Is it starting to come together here? The message of the kingdom, it's at hand, it's at hand. The kingdom's finally here according to Acts chapter 13, verse 33. When Jesus rose from the dead, he took his seat on his throne and the kingdom began. And 3,000 people were added the first day and then thousands more were added. And it tells us in Colossians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Acts chapter 17, that this message went throughout the entire Known world at that time. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, the opponents of the message said, these people who have turned the world upside down have come to our town too. I think you already know that part of the story. You've been reading the Bible. But here's the part that doesn't get much press. Media doesn't cover it very often. A lot of governments don't want you to know. But what God did in the first century, he has continued to do in every century. Just a couple months ago, I heard a report. Some preachers who had visited a mission work in Central Africa. We're talking about Christian church preachers restoration movement, part of a mission work there. And the thing that just jumped out at me more than anything else, and I'm sure I missed a lot of really good details, but the thing that jumped out at me was their best guesstimate now for the Christians who are in Central Africa outnumber all the Christians we have here in the United States. That's just one part of Africa. You go up to East, Northern Africa, around Ethiopia, there is an explosion of growth of Christianity in that part of Africa as well. I know you guys know David Morris, right? Every time I hear David Morris and the story of his father and him and their mission, just one mission work in South India, have started over 1,100 churches you know, every time I hear that, you know, if, if somebody said we had 1,100 baptisms, I'd be on my feet clapping and be like, yeah, we're not talking about 1,100 baptisms. We're talking about churches where sometimes there's several hundred people in each church, 1,100 churches. That's just one mission work in one part of South India. You know, in the Philippines, 
In the Philippines, they guess that there are more Christians in the Philippines than there are in all the United States of America. Do you know that it's hard to get numbers from China? But the underground church in China, they guesstimate, is larger than all the Christians put together here in North America. Do you understand what God is continuing doing? Here's what I heard just two, two and a half weeks ago. Two different reports in the news. That's shocking to me. In the news, it was talking about women evangelizing women, and it was really focused on women's ministry here. But if you read the details of the report, you find out that there is an explosion. That's the word they use. Explosion of Christianity in Iran. Okay, it may not get you. That really gets me. <laughs> it, just, it just underscores this idea. You know what? God wins. He always has, and he still is. Thank you. That's the lesson from God. But there are two more characters here. It's the king. And I think the king so accurately represents the world, doesn't know about Jesus. The part of the story I want you to focus on with me at this point is why did the dream bother him so much? Why did it bother him so much? You know, the last couple of verses of chapter 2 in the book of Daniel, the king is bowing down in front of a slave. I'm telling you, that just did not happen. That culture, that time, that civilization, a king did not bow down. But he bowed down in the presence of Daniel and made him number one over all the wise men in Babylon. I'm telling you, this, this dream was a game changer. It was just a shake-your-life-up thing for Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Why? Well, let me tell you, let me, I'll get there in a minute, but let me tell you about preacher's dreams. Can I do that? Preachers have dreams, at least some of us do, and here's the way it generally goes. We're in a church service, but it's the biggest church service we've ever seen. It's not in a normal church building or anything like that. It's usually at a convention center, you know, something amazingly large. There are thousands and thousands of people, and they're all singing God's praises. You know, it's a goosebump experience where it's like, yeah, wow, man, I wish this would never end. You know, singing praises to God is just a wonderful thing, and you can just feel it in your dream, and everything's going well. And then somebody comes up to the microphone, and they're going to introduce the speaker, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is great. I wonder what he's going to preach on. I hope I remember this when I wake up from my dream. You know, I'm just enjoying this so much. And when he stands up at the microphone, he says, and now for our message from the Word of God, Mark Bourne, would you come up here? And, and I'm like, What? No, nobody told me I was preaching today, right? And so I'm looking all over, but I can't find my Bible, but they're pushing me out of the chair, and I'm walking up on the stage, and I'm like, does anybody have a Bible? Like, somebody hands me a Bible, I open it up, all the pages are blank. For the life of me, I can't think of anything to say. Everybody's staring at me, and then people start to leave, and then I wake up in a cold sweat. Okay, that's a, a true, true story, by the way. That's a true dream, by the way. Anyway, uh, that's a preacher dream. Can I, can I tell you a pilot's dream? Pilot finally gets to fly the biggest plane that the company ever ha has, and he's finally uh, graduated that position, and, and everybody's patting him on the back, you know, the flight crew's congratulating him, and everything's going well, you know, there's hundreds of people on this flight, and everything's going well until one of the, one of the engines blows up, you know? And so the message comes to him, and everybody starts to panic, but he's, he's got it all under control because he's been trained for this. He knows what to do, and as soon as he starts to do what he's been trained to do, all of a sudden the other engine blows up. And then everybody's staring at him, and everybody's yelling, and everybody's screaming, and everybody's lost control, but that's okay. He's been trained for this. He knows what to do. And he, and, he, and he reaches forward to grab all the instruments, and all of a sudden, the instruments are gone. 
you know, and, and all the gauges, they're all blank. All he can see is the windshield, and it's a lot bigger now, and all he sees is pavement because the plane's going straight down, and in just a second, he wakes up in a cold sweat. Can I, can I tell you the surgeon's dream? Surgeon's standing there, and, and there are people from the family, and they're literally grabbing his clothes. They're begging him, oh, you got to save mom. We can't lose mom. And the surgeon's saying, Oh, it's a routine operation. I've done this dozens and dozens of times before. It's no problem. I'm going to save your mom's life. But, there, you know, tears come down. Oh, you've got to save mom. And he's reassuring them, it's fine. I'll save your mother. It's okay. Just go to the waiting room. He goes in the operating room, and he sees all these faces, you know, fellow uh, doctors, nurses, technicians, all the people who are in there. And in the middle of the operation, you know, everything's going smooth. He's done this dozens and dozens of times. And, and it's like clockwork. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, mom starts to bleed out. And every, everybody starts to panic, and people are saying, Doc, Doc, what are you going to do? you got to do something. And he knows, and he remembers his training. But he looks down, and all of a sudden his, his hands won't move. His fingers are glued together. He can't do a thing. And everybody starts to scream at him, and Mom's dying. And he wakes up in a cold sweat. I could tell you a few more dreams, but do you get the point? Everybody either has a dream or a moment where they go to that place where they don't usually like to go, and here it is. Everything I've built my life on, everything that represents me, that's my identity, that's what I do, that's what I have trained for. Everybody has that thing in life that they know in an instant can go away. Like a huge idol that can be just demolished and dust in the wind. You, you know that the investments that you've made, even though they're solid investments, is as good as it can possibly come. You know what happens in the stock market. You know what goes on in different countries. You know that embezzlement takes place. And you know that your savings, even though it's, it's, it's pretty secure, you know it's not that secure. You know what you've done for years and years and you're in good shape and you've got good health and everything else. But you know what? Accidents happen. And sometimes doctors tell you things you don't want to hear. Right, and the job that you thought you're so well trained for, nobody's ever going to let go, but then there's this restructuring, and all of a sudden somebody sits you down, has this talk with you, and, and that job that you're always counting, no, the, the, the jobs, you have those dreams, right? And a lot of times it's, it's people, it's relationships. Yeah, you know, everything else can go away, but as long as I've got my family, and you know what? I don't care what you say. My family will never let me down. Listen, I do not doubt that, but you do know they'll die. At a deep level, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that everything in this life, no matter how good, no matter how solid, no matter how rewarding it's been, tomorrow it could be gone. You know what Nebuchadnezzar saw in this image? He saw his kingdom. Can I tell you about Jeff? Jeff, in telling his own story, I know very little about Jeff, but I heard him tell his story. Jeff grew up in the south side of Chicago, rough, rough life from what, from the way he tells his story, and he got into alcohol, and the thing that really bothered him about not being able to control his drinking was the fact that he was hurting the people he cared most about. So Jeff finally decided to join Alcoholics Anonymous, and joining Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things they challenged him with is your higher power, and he said, well, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. And so they told him, well, it doesn't have to be God, but you have to have a higher power. And Jeff said, couldn't think of anything more important than me. For the next seven years of his life, he's reading every book, every self-help book he could get his hands on. 
He paid professionals. He went to therapy. Did everything you could, except the Christian stuff. Don't want to consider any of that stuff. But he read everything else he could read. He seeked all the help he could he could possibly find. But he wanted to leave God out of the picture, and he was getting nowhere. Had no close friends who were Christians purposefully. Until there was this one guy that he decided, okay, I'm going to be friends with him, even though he's a Christian, because that guy could get him into the places where he wanted to play golf. So they are playing a game of golf one day. He's playing with this Christian guy. He knows he's a Christian guy. Mentally, he's kind of prepared for this because he knows what Christians do. They talk about God, bring up stuff in the Bible from time to time. He's kind of mentally prepared for that. They're playing the game of golf. This Christian friend of his brings up something from the Bible. Jeff's prepared. He says, don't give me that. Don't want, to, don't want to go there. Don't want to talk about that. Don't try to, you know, jam that stuff down my throat. I'm an atheist. Let me make this clear. I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in that garbage. I'm talking about the Bible. So his friend, not giving up, said, well, can you tell me which part of the Bible you have problems with? You know, maybe I can help a little bit. Maybe, maybe I can give you some answers. And Jeff, honest enough, said, well, I haven't read the Bible because I'm an atheist. And his friend said, Jeff, you're not an atheist. You're a moron. (laughs) He said, let me define atheism for you. Atheism is the pursuit, an intellectual pursuit, some do it more than others, of investigating different world religions, usually Christianity, but a lot of different world religions, and coming to the conclusion that that just doesn't cut it for you, and so you decide there must not be a God. But you have circumvented the whole intellectual process and just jumped to the conclusion that there is no God. That's not atheism. That's being a moron. Please, don't call your non-Christian friends morons. But let me tell you why I'm telling you this story. Jeff eventually did become a Christian, but he was forever having the nightmares, and his life was spiraling down because there was a hole that he left empty that only God can fill. Nothing in this life is secure. You have to have something beyond this life. That's where we get to the third character, you and me. God uses you and me to tell them about Jesus. A lot we could say, I just want to go to one point, okay? One of the reasons I love, a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons I love Daniel chapter 2 is, what does God use? He uses a rock. You notice it didn't say he used a diamond. didn't say he developed a pearl. doesn't say it's a gold nugget. He just uses a rock. Would you think about that with me for a minute? Because when the Bible uses this metaphor of a rock, over in 1 Peter it says, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief chief cornerstone. In fact, fact, it's not just a rock. It's not a very good rock. And yet God uses a rock that from the vantage point of humans doesn't look very good to make something that conquers the world. You know why that means so much to me? Because a lot of times I feel like a rock. You ever feel like, well, what if they ask me questions I can't answer? You know, there's not much I can give, not much I can do. You understand what I'm saying? Do you you ever feel like a rock? Well, here's the point. God takes rocks and conquers the world. I, I had a conversation yesterday with a minister who's telling me about 
a woman in his congregation, whole family, but this woman in particular, she has, I, I guess, to hear him talk, she has been involved in a lot of different ministries. A lot of people are Christians today because this woman and her whole family, but this woman in particular, has been a faithful member of the church that he serves for 19 years. She became a Christian when she first started attending church 19 years ago. Well, how'd that happen? He said, we had an elderly woman in the congregation, lived in a retirement community, one of these uh, assisted living places. And she decided one day, there's not much I can do, but you know what? I can invite my friends to come to church. So she went to the apartment next to her to invite the person who lived next to her to come to church. And the person said, I'm not going to your church. So she went to the next apartment and invited them, and they said no. She went to the next apartment. They had an excuse. She went to every single apartment in that whole assisted living community, and every single person turned her down. But there was a nurse that worked at the facility who heard her inviting all of her friends, and I'm guessing out of pity, came up to this elderly woman and said, I'll go to church with you. And you know what? She liked it so much, and she learned so much, she kept coming back till she was baptized into Christ. And today, after 19 years, a whole lot of other people are Christians because that woman came to church because an elderly woman decided, I'm going to invite somebody to church. Sounds like a rock to me. But God takes rocks and conquers the world. He always has, and he still is.